You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests will share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns, and more difficult seasons, but also how they moved on and up to keep creating and inspiring others to build a life of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. So this episode is really special to me. We actually recorded this podcast back in February, long before our worlds were turned upside down by COVID-19, or what I affectionately refer to as Aunt Rona. Today, you're going to hear my first, but hopefully not my last, in-person interview that I recorded at the Seiko offices here in Portland, Oregon. I had the pleasure of meeting this kindred spirit, Sadie Lincoln. I had known of Sadie because she is this Portland success story who co-founded Bar 3, a fitness company that is focused on teaching people to be balanced in body and empowered from within. In this episode, Sadie and I talked about a myriad of topics from Sadie's incredibly fascinating upbringing to mommy guilt and to how people treat you differently once you've become a celebrated entrepreneur or leader. We talk about what steps Sadie took alongside her husband, who's also her business partner, to become better leaders in their company in the face of some very real challenges that I am so grateful Sadie shared with us. Please stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear a message and update from Sadie on Bar 3's plans to reopen and to adapt in this new world created by COVID-19, as well as the company's commitment to address systemic racism in our country. There's a lot of good stuff here, so let's get going. Sadie, I am so excited to have you on the show today. We were just chatting a little bit before the show, and I was like, this is the amazing thing about the podcast. You can just have the conversations with the people you admire, get their story, get all of their wisdom, and then other people happen to be able to listen. But I am so excited for you guys to meet Sadie Lincoln, who, among many other things, is the founder of Bar 3, which is an amazing fitness organization. I'm going to let her share more about it, but it is based here in our hometown of Portland, Oregon. Go Portland. So thanks so much for journeying a little bit south to be with me today. Uh, Yeah, my pleasure. We're on the same side, by the way. Yeah, there we go. We're both east siders. Which is the important thing in Portland. Uh North and south (laughs) is not so much a division. East and west. Yeah. There's a very big cultural divide. It it is. It feels like a long ways away to go over. It does. We've got some great friends over on the west side, and every Mm -hmm. time they invite us over, we're like, uh, maybe in like three (laughs) months? Like, I don't know how we're going to make that happen. And the reality is... It's like a 20-minute drive. But the mental... It's a mental. It's a mental game. It is. Well, it thanks is. for thanks for making time. Um, so tell us just a little bit about you, your background, how and where did you grow up, and what led you to eventually founding Bar 3? Uh, first of all, I'm really happy to be here, too. It's so fun. I secretly wish the microphones were on earlier. We could talk forever. You're Literally the kind of person forever. I could sit with for a long time. Long, long time. Um. I well, I was born in Taos, New Mexico, and I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which isn't too far from Portland. And then at 18, I moved to LA to get to know my dad, who had not raised me and I didn't really know. I grew up in what I now realize is an alternative environment to me. It was my normal. <laughs> I love that. That's, 
Um, when did you realize that it was alternative? And tell us a little bit about what made it alternative. Okay. So first, what made it alternative is my mom in the late 60s um, became really good friends with four women. And uh, they were part of the counterculture, meaning they dropped out of mainstream and and were in a process of discovering a new way of living that was in alignment with their core values. And some of those core values included nature and a commitment to looking inside for answers. And specifically through dream analysis, they were really interested in Carl Jung. And that kind of um, alignment and values is what bonded them. And they all ended up having children without a man in their lives for various reasons. My story is my dad... (laughs) The legend goes, he <laughs> literally rode his horse into their camp. An actual literal horse, horse into camp. Okay, got it, got it. Impregnated my mom and I rode his horse away. Uh, and my mom chose to have me as hers. Yeah. She chose to to go that route. Yeah. I have her last name. Mm. Um, and he came in and out a little bit when I was little, but when I was 18, that's when I really wanted to know who is this guy. Yeah. Uh, And I think I realized that it was alternative when we, in Taos, New Mexico, we lived so fluidly. Um, They had, they chose really not to work very much. We are, a lot of our homes didn't have electricity. We were very, uh, you know, back to the basics and just, went with the rhythms of the seasons. And I remember it, oddly, even though I was four and a half when we left, I remember it. And I've also heard so many stories. It's yeah. such a rich time mm. in my mother's life and in who I consider my aunties. So the other women, we've sta- remained a family. They had kids. Those kids are my siblings. Yeah. I call them brothers and sisters. And we all moved to Eugene. Okay. And... Uh, when we all moved to Eugene, we lived in different homes, but we always lived near each other. We rented. I lived in 13 homes by the time I was eight. Wow. 13 homes by the time you were eight. But always <laughs> yeah. with, so it was like there was some traditional how we would think of insecurity or movement, but it was always within the context of that kind of chosen family. Yeah, I was very loved. Yeah. Not just by my mother, but by these other women who were not blood related to me. And it's really interesting. I've thought a lot about it recently. What a gift that is to have people who are that who are not blood related show you the same love as a mother would mm. is what children need. Yes. Oh, I love that. And it's so affirming to me. It's one of my greatest hopes. So for those of you who know about our community here in Portland, Oregon, it's really in some ways similar. There's nobody riding in on a horse and <laughs> 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 but, you know, the concept of yeah. being that safe, unconditional, loved space for kids that aren't biologically yours, our kids are all still so young right now. And so, obviously, you know, you can see it, but it's like the effect that that's going to have. But it's like one of the things that I look forward to most is, you know, I've got two little girls on our property that are not mine biologically that I love as if they're my children. And I have boys and just like thinking about them being teenagers and like what will be the truth 
that, of course, their amazing mothers will have told them since the day that they were born, but that having someone that isn't their mom speak that over them and tell them that they are worthy and show them the things about them that are so unique. And uh, I, that's like one of the things that I'm like most excited about is cultivating those relationships with these kids that aren't mine. Well, and it's such a gift. You're giving them such a gift. It is such a gift. In my darkest hours when I don't feel lovable or I have inner critic on an all-time high, I think about those moments when I was young, when Lois, for example, who's my godmother um, of the group, she would just always say to me, she would literally whisper in my ear, she sees me, like, like, you know, and gets me. And, and, you know, affirmed my wit and my intelligence and wisdom just as much as my outer success. And I heard it more clearly when she said it versus my mom. Why do you think that is? Because she didn't have to. My mom, it's like blood, I mean, blood. And you're, and I look a lot like my mom. Mm. She, you know, she, the, you can't help but project on your own child. Yeah. Right? We are just so similar, the two of us. So from here, I'm like, of course you do, mom. Do you think there's like a little bit of the ego element of like, I am a mini person, this is, and this child is the product of me. And so of course I want her to feel loved so that she's like, you know, successful or grounded because that will reflect on me as like a parent. And it's very complicated. It is complicated. And it's good to be aware of that as a parent. With my kids, I you know, I've become more and more aware that I do that. Yeah. And not intentionally, totally. but I do that. And I think if yeah. we can just acknowledge it, that it's like, that's not a terrible, like you're not some, you know, weird egomaniac. You're just like a normal person. I feel like what that will do, and I say in the future, because I'm not quite there as a parent yet, is it will give me the freedom to say like, it's okay for other people to step in and meet a need that maybe for whatever reason, I'm not, I can't because I'm your mom, but you can, you might be able to hear that from somebody else. But I feel like it takes someone who's very grounded to not be threatened by that, that like someone else is going to take my job or like be their person and I'm their mom and I'm the most important person in their life, which in many ways I'm sure your mom played that role, but you have to be really rooted, I feel like, and secure in the role that you play in your kid's life. That was interesting for me when I first had my two kids and just growing up, you know, raising them, because I was raised in such a generous environment where the baby was passed around all the time. All the moms were so generous with their own children in that they let other people be a part of the raising. And to be around possessive parents— it's been interesting for me. Yeah. And I'm not in judgment of it, but I, it is, that is the norm to be really like, this is my baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's just been, you know. It's so interesting. I think about it a lot. Like, so I travel a fair amount and I've got two young kids and I've, you know, had this thought before that, of course, it makes me sad to leave them. I actually, frankly, knock on wood, three and a half years into my parenting journey and mommy guilt is just like, not something that I struggle with very much, that it's like, I don't like, no, guilt is when you're doing something like really bad or wrong and like working and providing for my family and doing something that I really believe is is making an impact in the world. Like that's not wrong. Now I might be sad and I am sad when I leave my kids or I like miss them. I think that that is something that's so important for women, specifically moms to realize like not every negative emotion you're feeling is guilt. Like we have such right. a strong narrative around mommy guilt that I feel yeah. like it's the moment I feel something negative and it has to do with me and then my kids, it's like, oh, I'm feeling mommy guilt. And it's like, we're becoming these like one dimensional beings that are either happy and content 
or like suffering from, you know, this enormous case of mommy guilt. And I'm like, we're keeping ourselves from feeling so many emotions. Like, can we tap into that and say, is it guilt? Is it sadness? Is it longing? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Like, those all might, you know, and and getting more nuanced with actually like, no, you can feel more than one emotion as a mom could be really helpful. I wonder if guilt is even ever the core. I think there's always something underneath guilt. Mm -hmm. Why do you feel guilty? Yeah. Like what is it underneath the guilt? Yeah. Um, That there's something there. Totally. Because we can't feel guilt without there being a standard that's been set that we feel like we're like not meeting. Right. You know, when I travel, one of the things that I think about is that by stepping out, I actually am allowing, first of all, my husband and my partner, like to cultivate a level of intimacy with our kids that I think would be more difficult if I was around all of the time. Yeah. Kind of assuming the role yeah. of like, I'm the primary child caregiver. This comes more naturally to me. Mm-hmm. I have, the, you know, especially when they're really young and thinking about the fact that there are other people that are able to like be that space for them to feel safe, to feel loved. And I will say from an ego perspective, it can be difficult. Yeah. Like, I want my <laughs> totally. kids to like fall apart when I'm gone because there's something that feels mine, good about mine, that. Mine never did. Yeah. <laughs> and they also preferred Chris when they were little. Okay. And cuddled more with him yeah. and would like jump in his arms when he walked in. When I'd walk in, they're like, hey, mom. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So I remember being so wounded by that. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, but then it's like <laughs> it's in hindsight, gift, totally, though. that it's like, why do I want, it's like pretty twisted if you think about it, that it's like, I want my kids and my my home life to fall apart when I'm gone. Right. They'll suffer so that right. I can be like, look Feel how good. needed I am. You know, as opposed to <laughs> yeah. when I leave, like at least my three and a half year old, same, same. He's just like, cool, mom, where are you going? Are you going on an airplane? Can I get a cookie? Like, it's right. just very like, great, life is going to go on. And when you come back, That'll be great, but there isn't this, like, gnashing of the teeth and, like, the world falling apart. And then I'm like, that's, like, ultimately, that's what I want for my kids more than anything is for them to be able to go in the world and feel a sense of, like, I'm loved, I am safe, I can be flexible, we can do hard things, and then we're all back together again. Like, great. But it's just so the journey of schlepping off of our egos and our insecurities, it's an interesting one. It's a practice. Yes. So you grew up in the context of community when you were 18. You went to go find your dad. Yeah. Then what happened? I um, I enrolled in Santa Monica City College. Okay. And uh, that was the loneliest mm. era ever. Wow. I was so raw and insecure and vulnerable in L.A., Coming from Eugene, Oregon, from this nurturing environment where I was told every day how wonderful I was. And, you know, like mediocrity was definitely celebrated in my family. Mm. There there was no pressure to succeed. Okay. Zero. Okay. Zero, zero, zero pressure to succeed. So then you get to LA where everyone's awesome. Everyone looks awesome. And I enrolled in City College where it was really hard to connect with people. They were mostly high school friends that already had a click. Okay. They Ooh, obviously tough. weren't living on campus. It was an older demographic. Yeah. And I was living with my dad and his new wife, who was recently pregnant, not really welcomed because, of course, I mean, she didn't. It was a surprise for her, I yeah. think, to have this oh, 18-year-old wow. come. Okay. Yeah. And I did make one really good friend at Santa Monica City College. Her name was Jew. And her and her sister taught me to study. Okay. Like that's when I just hunkered down and realized I want to get I need to get good grades. I want to go to UCLA. Mm. So I initiated that 
I moved out of my dad's house and initiated that for myself so I could be in a more social environment. And then things started to perk up a little. Yeah. And that's actually where I discovered fitness at the John Wooden Center okay. at, in UCLA. Ran the fitness instructor training program, really found a sense of community and connection there. And um, yeah. Do you think that the fact that however many years later your life is in, obviously your company is in the fitness industry, is that because the first place once you left home that you experienced real community again was fitness? Like how how big of a link do you think that is? It's big. It's a big one for me. And even though I had a group of friends, none of them were into fitness. They didn't come to my group exercise classes. I felt a part of something. I felt like I belong there. And there is something to moving in unison to music that is so healing. And growing up as a kid, we did that all the time. We called it boogie parties. I grew up with music in the background. Yeah. We always had music playing and we were always dancing. It was women and we were dancing. It was boogie parties. And I really think group exercise for me felt like that. Totally. You know, it was predominantly women all yeah. and moving, feeling good together, that sense of connection yeah, and community. Yeah, that's really powerful. Okay, I want to talk about mediocrity being celebrated. <laughs> so in my book, Beginner's Pluck, I have a whole chapter that's called Own Your Average. Oh, I love and it. And the whole concept is like, over the last, I don't know, 10 years in kind of the self-help movement, there has been this real like movement towards like, you're special, you're more talented than you think you are, you're smarter than you think you are. And in order to be successful, you have to believe that about yourself, that you're above average, and then you have to go out in the world and just like own it and then prove it. Unfortunately, what the science shows us is that that belief of like, I am special and I'm especially destined to do something especially great actually keeps us in a place of fear. And it is it prohibits growth mentality, right? So it's like, well, if I've been told I'm, you know, super above average my whole life and there's all of this expectation to go out and live, you know, this above average life and be super successful and show how awesome you are, you stop taking risks, right? You only say yes to the assignments that you know you're going to be awesome at right away because you have this kind of image where a lot of your identity comes from that you need to protect. Yeah. I really believe that if we start out from this spot of like, I may be a little bit smarter than average, but I'm definitely below average in this area and I'm kind of average here and it basically all, it's kind of a wash. Um, I know to do something extraordinary, I'm gonna have to go out. I'm gonna have to try and probably fail a lot and like pivot and experiment. And I'm probably gonna embarrass myself every once in a while because I bit off more than I can chew. And right. it really propels us and it kind of gives us this sense of freedom. And I haven't done this, these many interviews and you are, it seems to be such a common theme, frankly, with <laughs> sick, people that people would people. deem the world is really successful. I truly believe that the most beautiful things in the world are created not out of a sense of striving of like, I'm going to go be successful so that I can prove yes. my worth, yeah. but out of a sense of belonging of like, yeah. I already believe that I'm good enough. I already yeah. believe that I belong. I already believe that whatever I have to offer is good and interesting. And like out of that sense of freedom, I'm going to go create. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how that manifested in your growing up. This, yeah. So I think you called it a celebration of mediocrity. Yeah. I mean, a kind of, we didn't focus on external measures of success. Okay. That is not how I was validated. We had a family practice of sitting in circle and part of circle, it was not about, so tell me about, gosh, you got all those A's. That's mm. so awesome. 
um, tell me about your sport, tell me about your lead in the play. It was it was never ever about that. It was about um, a lot of times, did anybody have a dream? And that was really an entry point into self reflection. What did that dream mean hmm. about you inside? Yeah. And an entry point for self-awareness. Yeah. Just a dialogue, a conversation around our inner worlds and how important that is. And to be validated as a young woman growing up always with that kind of, you know, conversation. I didn't even take the SATs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was just not a thing. It wasn't a thing for me. And there's another side to that story in that I went to alternative schools growing up. I didn't have high self-esteem when it came to academics, mm. and I didn't have the tools to get good grades mm. because they didn't focus on that. So there, there's always another yeah. side. Yeah. These, it sounds so romantic, totally. but there's another side. Yeah. In the real world, which is measured by external yeah. measures, which I would argue too much, yeah. very masculine energy out yeah. in the world, when feminine energy is important too, yin-yang, like yeah. the inner world is just as important as the outer world. Both are important. Both are important. The The outer world is celebrated out of balance. Mm-hmm. And so when you go into school, that is what you're judged on yeah. and what your clothes are and, and who you hang out with and, you know, what you know, sport you play and award yeah, you get. Exactly. And, yeah. That is how we're measured. And that affected me. Yeah. And I didn't have high self-esteem when it came mm. to grades, so I just didn't try. And I think I had so much, I was so bold because of that also. Yeah. And that I just was curious about my inner knowing and like what sounded exciting mm. to me. Being in LA sounded exciting. The idea of being an actress sounded exciting Mm. as I enrolled in my first acting course and I hated it. Okay. So I was like, oh, but I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of it. And I think I wanted to just act my way out of my reality. It's really, my imagination Mm. has always been Mm. high. Mm. I hear you. Am I wrong in that I feel like I remember, I don't know if you told me this or if I read, were you guys on like a sabbatical when you started Bar 3? Well, so we had this trigger moment where Chris, we were unhappy in the Bay Area. We were working really hard in corporate jobs that weren't aligned with us. Okay. We were lonely as a couple. Mm-hmm. Lonely has been a theme. Did not feel a sense of community. And in fitness, I felt a high degree of shame mm-hmm. that was attached to an outcome of looking the part. I was a fitness professional at that point. So looking the part, um, measuring up was yeah. always a weight on my shoulders. Yeah. And a heavy weight in my body and my psyche, everything. And so all of that mixed in. And, and we had two babies back to back. So as a new mother, we'd finally bought a house in the Bay Area that we loved. We kind of arrived. And Chris came to me one day with a spreadsheet. He had figured out how we could sell our house, which was our entire life savings yeah. was in the house, and use that money for a year to unplug he, his idea was to move to Bend, okay. not work for an entire year, wow. and live very simply with our children, which is very, that struck a chord Super because appealing. that's how yeah. I was raised yeah. too. Like he, you know, that was back to my roots. Totally. Uh, and I'm an achiever. And and so the idea of dropping out didn't excite me. But what excited me was, well, let's take that money and put it to work to a career that's just based on what we value. See what happens. Yeah. Why not? Like, let's do that for a year. Let's see what happens. I love that. And I love, I have a really similar story that, you know, when I quit my corporate job and I moved to Uganda, there's so many people that are like, weren't you so afraid? And I was like, I was 
No. I mean, I was like afraid of a few things, you know, like malaria and yeah. showing up on a continent where I didn't know a single soul. But really, like, there was nothing. There was this sense of freedom that it was just like, what do I have to lose? You know, and just like a curiosity. And I will say in a big reason why I wrote Beginner's Pluck was because I found that 10 years into my career, I was afraid that yeah. all of a sudden there was all of this expectation and there are people that are looking at you and there are, you know, now there are like budgets and 401ks and yeah. health insurance premiums and investors and burn rates and it's all of true. these things. And I was it's like, true. could I, what was I like? What was my mental state when I just was like, I don't know. Let's just yeah. like see. Let's see what's there. And being realistic that it's like, I can't show up to work every day now and be like, I don't know. Let's just like see. Well, I think that curiosity is so liberating. Yeah. Also a practice. Yeah. I had the exact mm. same experience. Once I got in and once we were official and we were successful, all of a sudden my inner critic, that's maybe where the fear started to come in. Is Am I enough? Am I enough? I need to know all the answers. Um, meetings stopped being ex- interesting and exhilarated. They started to be tiresome and stressful because we lost the curiosity, the, yeah. the asking the questions. Yeah. Instead of, you know, ending sentences with, a question mark, which I used to do, like, I wonder if we did that, yeah. how that would feel. Yeah. I wonder if um, we didn't do fitness the way we were raised in the fitness industry to do. Let's try that. Yeah. We lost that. Mm. And we started to say, this is how we need to do it, period. You went from being someone who was just curious and wanted to build community and rethink fitness and maybe get to spend more time with your kids to being like, Sadie Lincoln, the CEO of Bar 3. And once you start to adopt titles, rightfully so, a lot of baggage, I think, can come with that of like, well, this is what it looks like to be a successful CEO in this industry at this growth rate. Did absorbing the other people's opinions of what that meant for who you were affect you at all? I think more importantly for me, it's how people started to treat me. Mm. When I was open bar three, the first studio, I was checking people in, teaching most of the classes, holding babies in childcare. Yeah. I was with the people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Pe- that's how people saw me. Yeah. Is, oh, she's just like me and we're in this together and I want to support her business. This is amazing. And then I became successful and celebrated as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And put in a different category. And I lost that connection with people. Hmm. I think how people see me has changed yeah. to this day. Yeah. Um, when I walk into a studio, quite frankly, there's a different energy. Sure. And it's nerves. Yeah. She's here. Yeah. yeah. The founder's here. The CEO's here. That I heard on the, the this and the that. And I saw on the this and the that. Really, it's still just me. I still want to hold the babies. I still want to help you behind the desk. I still want to take class just like any other client. I, I have a, an aching back too. I'm stressed out too. Sure. Like that's where the lonely comes in. Yeah. But I understand it on the other flip side. I totally get it. Totally. Um, it's both and. It's both. both but it can be and. super lonely, but yeah. also this is kind of how things work and there are good things and appropriate things about those, you know, just like leadership and boundaries, but also hard. Yeah. And then all that energy around me, how people see me is I, I was blind to, and I actually, I had a consultant recently tell me when it comes to punctuation, for example, he said, anyone in your role in an environment that you have, like you you could go in a room and say something with a period and everybody leaves that room thinking you said it with an exclamation mark. And he gave this. interesting, yeah, And it's so, 
Interesting. And meaning that you you said it more passionately or more or committed off, or off just like, like okay. he gave me an example because he had a high C level position in a company. He walked in and he's he loves brown rice tea. He loved the brown rice tea. And he just walked in and, and all of a sudden the brown rice tea wasn't in the thing. So he just walked in and he's like, hey, where's the brown rice tea? Um, oh, I miss it. You know, and then the memo went out. We need brown rice tea. Okay. And yep. he walked into the storage closet like a month later and it was just the the shelves were filled with the brown rice tea. Wow. And he's like, whoa. And he went back to investigate. He's like, that, that's a lot of brown rice tea. <laughs> and the the team said, well, nobody else likes it except you, and we have to buy it in bulk. And so, like, wow. it became, and yeah. it's an example of he just was, it was an off the cuff. But to them, it was like, we need brown rice tea. Totally. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is so good. Not only are you a successful CEO, you are a lifestyle and movement leader. You've become an icon in the industry and you represent a way of thinking, I would say, beyond fitness. Um, and so you you kind of started to develop this like this movement in this passion. It would be really easy for people to look at you and be like, well, Sadie Lincoln, she just, I'm sure everything she touched turned to gold and she probably, you know, started this thing and everybody loved it and she couldn't keep up and they were opening up stores left and right and... <laughs> Everything works. You know, we yeah. have, we, we we make people into myths that it's just like, I we see do. it and I assume that everything must have been so easy. Can yeah. you let us into a little bit of the behind the scenes journey and you can pick from how long is Bar 3? You founded it in 2000? 11 years. Okay. So 11 years. And the yeah. last 11 years, can you be generous enough? Um, and I, I recognize in asking people to share this, that there is a level of generosity that's involved about your journey. And yeah. what has been an area that didn't come really easy or something that happened that made you question yourself of like, what am I doing? I'm not cut out for this whatever the narrative was, because yeah. my hope is that when people hear the show and they're out in the world and they're creating and it's not going well, they're yeah. not getting the reception that they ho hoped. Maybe they're facing a roadblock that feels really hard. It's so easy for us to tell the story of like, well, it's hard because I suck. It's hard because I'm not good enough. It's hard because nobody cares about what I'm doing. Yeah. And my belief is that if we can build up enough people who are like, I'm out in the world and I'm creating cool stuff also. It's really hard. Yeah. Also, there are times where it didn't feel like it was working. There was an era in bar three where I was struggling and I didn't want people to know mm. because that's not what successful people do when they achieve. Yeah. Uh, and I was so rooted in my identity of being a beloved leader because in the beginning, I really was. People were attracted to the fact that I was a, a mom with two little babies, put her life savings to work, work teaching all the classes. Like that drew in my initial team. Sure. I was one of them. Yeah. Then like fast forward, I'll never forget the first birthday party I wasn't invited to in the office, right? And like, I wasn't one of them anymore. Like yeah. we had gotten to this point where it was like, I'm someone different. Mm -hmm. They're all good friends. Yeah. You know, and I just struggled silently around that, not knowing how to navigate that. Yeah. And then um, still identifying though with beloved culture, we're so awesome. We just keep growing organically. Yeah. Like we didn't have the real struggles that I heard everywhere mm. else. We got all the awesome PR, tons of community involvement, um, layer after layer. We're growing, we're growing, we're growing, we're growing. And then layers of uh, skill was needed yeah. to, to be able to scale 
to scale the business, but we didn't have it in-house. But we were all, I was so loyal to that feeling of camaraderie mm. that I lost sight of that I need to serve bar three and yeah. the platform yeah. and figure out the right leaders who are equipped to do that yeah. and mentor the ones who aren't. Yeah. And I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. One thing led to another and we had our big culture hit and it was like an earthquake. Really? Yeah. It hit super hard and we had to lay off like eight people, okay. which was horrific yeah. because we'd never done that first of all and we were all really they were all so really close. I would say they were all really close. Yeah. And so that went through the entire organization. Yeah. Um again didn't know how to lay off people. You know, this is all new for me. Then after that the low was one of my team members Nicole who you know. Yeah. Um was relatively new and she came into my office and she said we are having a, a culture crisis. You wow. know this, don't you? And I was kind of like uh, yeah, but I, I hadn't, you know, I was hiding it. Yeah. And she suggested we do an mm. anonymous survey just to figure out what the heck's going on. Yeah. Great idea. Oh my gosh. Which had to have felt awful to have someone oh. walk in your office and say, <laughs> you know, we have a crisis. Yeah. But to do that out of a spirit of like, there are people that point out problems because they get satisfaction of saying you're not doing it right. And then there are people that point out problems because they say like, we can be more and we can do better. And I want to be a part of moving us in that direction. Right now, my role is to say what this is. Like, what a gift. Yeah, and my pattern was to just please people. Yeah. So when we were having culture issues, like there were some team members where I would just keep wanting them to like me. Yeah. So I'm like, well, why don't, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. What job do you want? Like, let's, you know, I would just keep pleasing them. Yeah. Because I was so afraid of facing conflict. Yeah. And I honestly, honestly, I was afraid of not being liked. Yeah, yeah. And how conceited is that, first of all? Like, an ego-driven is that? I was putting my own company, like, at risk so people liked me. Yeah. I mean, really, and it's the greatest gift to know this now yeah. about myself, yeah. that I that is my motivation often, and I need to keep myself in check. Yeah, and it's so human. Oh, it's and totally so many human. of us do that. But yeah, yeah, it is. It's like that need to be needed, the need to be liked, the need to be beloved. And during this whole era, I looked like I was the most liked person on the planet. I had just been on how I built this. I da 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 da. Like on from the outside view. So it's a lesson of when you see people when they seem like every they're just on their A game. Yeah. I had never I was on my that was the lowest low. Wow. I was on my hands so and knees. I was not okay. Yeah. Like, not okay. Hot, hard to get out of bed, crying all the time, um, deeply insecure. So then I was acting really like I wasn't a very fun person to be around. Yeah. The punchline is the results came back and they were a lot of them were pointed towards me as a leader. <laughs> yeah. I literally Brutal. feel nauseous right now. Can you take us back to that? Like, what was the story that you told? What were the emotions that, like, well, that it was like, the five stages of emotion, you know, yeah. fear, anger, disgust, whatever they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say it, it was at yeah. first, like the first kind of stuff that came that came through for me was anger and mm. resentment. Like, how could they? They don't understand. They don't know that I've been paying myself and not paying other people. And da, 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 da. My story, right? My narrative about how could they? I've given them so much. I've done, you know, that that story. So I had a choice in that moment to continue with that narrative. Yeah. And that narrative would have led me, honestly, probably to selling the company. Wow. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm out. Yeah. Or, and I had help around the or. I had a team of wonderful 
um, my entrepreneur group, it's EO. There, oh, I have yeah. eight people who yeah. also own their own companies, and we have a support group every month. Yeah, I sent an, out an SOS text. They came to my home, held my hands. I literally have goosebumps. Look at my arms. They right brought now. me tater tots, my favorite food, and they well held, literally held me while I weeped and helped me through the data. One of them happens to own a research company. So she helped me through the data and to look at it less emotional yeah. and more productive. Yeah. And one of my guys on the, was he's just so amazing. He said to me, we experienced share versus advice giving. He said, wow, I had something similar happen. And, you know, I decided to really come to my team and share with them where people saw that I was falling and own it and just be honest with them about that. And I just looked at him and I'm like, yeah, that's your, that's who I am mm. too. And that's what I need to do. Mm. My other, the other guy in, on my, in my group said, do they know what it's like to be a CEO? Do they even know what it is to be a CEO? That was a good question. Yeah. No, no, yeah. yeah, no is the answer because you don't know until you are. Right. And a founder, as you know. Yeah. So I decided to read the data, get it productive, put it in a format that was digestible and sit on the hot seat and share it with our home office or all our team. And Chris and I, my partner and I were married and we we run the company together. We decided to put ourselves on a plan to better ourselves as leaders based on the feedback with KPIs. So we met for three months after on a journey to show them how we were changing Mm -hmm. as leaders based on the data. Yeah. That gave everybody in the office permission to do the same, right? That mm. opened us up as a growth mindset company, a company that's allowed to fail even when you're the CEO, yeah, allowed to fall on your knees. As long as you look at that and say, what did I learn from this? Yeah, Please, team, support me in this very vulnerable moment yeah. compassionately yeah, because I too am a human being. Support me in this very vulnerable moment yeah. compassionately because I too am a human being. If we can look at it just like an injury in the body of curiosity, what can I learn from this moment? Mm -hmm. How can I grow from this moment? And it's hard to see when you're in the goo, when you're in the yuck, when you're so alone and devastated. But even just a mantra that that there's something good on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. And it's hard to even imagine. But there is something so good on the other side of this if I don't run away from it. If I, I... Hit it head on. Yeah. And it's impossible to do alone. We heal in in community. Yeah. Groups of people around you that you trust who bring you tater tots. Oh, that picture of those eight people. I love them. Oh, I love that. That is so so powerful. And they're such stand up people. I mean, for me, it's surrounding myself with people who up level me, who expand me versus contract. Mm -hmm. And I had a tendency of surrounding myself with people who diminished me mm. that I wanted to kind of push myself down yeah um versus really celebrate that I'm successful yeah like our mutual friend Ruthie Lindsay mm-hmm. um what I love the most about her we both talk about this we're like you can brag around me mm-hmm. oh like, I love that so much I will be your greatest cheerleader tell me how freaking amazing you are I love especially as women yeah. oh my gosh the pressure to not be that person. Mm-hmm. And the vitriol that some women have towards other successful women. We had a, um, a whole thing in our community. I would invite women. So we do like monthly webcasts. And we have our whole community of sellers that are out and they're selling the product. And they would be 
just killing it, you know, like building teams, high sales, awesome leadership. And I would invite them on to the webcast and be like, tell us, like, what are you doing? Share it with our community. And it was so common that women would go, well, okay. I mean, I mean, honestly, first off, I just want to say, I think I got really lucky (laughs) and I would get so angry because I'm like, that isn't luck. Like you're saying that because in order to feel liked or loved, you think that you need to say yeah. that because you yeah. need to, you need to take away any sense of I'm bragging, I'm you know too excited about my own success. You're going to blame it on luck um, so that you can be liked. Here's also what that's doing to your community of women that you do love dearly. You're making your success actually impossible for them to like learn and grow from because you're blaming it on luck instead of saying like, that's this is what I did. Like I, here, here's my tactics and here's what yeah. I did. It had nothing to do with luck. It had everything to do with, I was super bold here and then I took a risk here and then I got knocked down over here. But then I surrounded myself with eight people and eight tater tots and got back <laughs> on the horse. And ultimately yeah. it's such a more generous way of living and being to own your stuff, good and bad, so that you can share that with others. The minute you say like, oh, well, I'm just super humble and I think I just got lucky. It makes what you're doing to other people totally elusive. I I think on the other side of that is being self-aware and honest and Mm -hmm. humble about being on the other side of that. Yes. So because until we create a culture of women that are like what Ruthie and I say, like we love each other because I'm like, me too. Like you can totally brag around me. Yeah. Because I I love you. Because I love you and I'm secure in myself. Yes. So just noticing those times when we're in groups of women, like at book club, on the playground, in the hot tub, wherever you are with a group of women on a walk, like pushing other women down or when someone's talking about their success, what is your true reaction? Yes. Are you asking more questions? Mm -hmm. Are you reflecting back their success? Mm -hmm. Are you truly there for them Mm -hmm. in the moment when they're winning? Mm -hmm. I think that's rare. Sadly. I do too. I do too. Oh my and it's God. something that- I, ch- I feel like I just had the weirdest aha. So when we're successful, we act like we're failing. <laughs> and when we're failing, we oh act like God. we're successful. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> we so have true. got this all wrong. That is so good. We have got this all wrong. I think people only see the outside of the leadership journey, of the accolades, of the, you know, whatever, the success metrics. Totally. But it's like, if you are in it just for you, I know very few leaders who could handle it because it can be so, it is, that it is such a journey. But I feel like the thing that kept you in was being like, it's not about just me. It's not about me waking up and feeling affirmed every single day. And, you know, it's, it's actually about this bigger thing that we're a part of. And like, and I know in my own self, I'm one of my mantras is like, I don't, if the story has me at the center, that's a really small, boring story. Like I want to be a part of something that is big and beautiful and that encompasses other people and their stories and the impact that they're going to go out and make. That's going to create this ripple effect that's like, I couldn't have done that. You could have, but it wouldn't be sustainable. Yes. Yeah, totally. Nobody can embody a business by themselves. Yeah. Nobody. And those that do perhaps are narcissistic anyways and not, I mean, it's just not, you know, a very fun company to yeah. be a part yeah. of, right? Yeah, totally. Um, I think the other side of it not being just about me, it being about the platform is is then how do I serve yeah. Bar3? Yeah. And when people think of a CEO, 
they have an imagined ideal about what a CEO is Mm -hmm. that is different than me. Mm -hmm. And I need to be okay with that. Um, I know my unique genius that I bring to bar three, and that's what I'm going to focus on. And that's where I am the most alive, and that's where bar three thrives. And that's true for everybody that works at bar three. When you have purpose, the next step is how can I serve that purpose mm. with my skills? Yeah. Not what other people think I need to be. Yeah. Because when you have that alignment, it's magic, yeah. right? Then it's not work. Are you in a place now in your leadership journey? Can things still spark that sense of shame in you of like, they think I'm this or I should be this and I'm not? Or do you feel pretty like, grounded and rooted and like, I don't do that and I do do this and this is good enough and this is what I offer. After a lot of work, yes. Okay, that's amazing. (laughs) But a lot of personal work. Okay, I literally, this podcast could be 10 hours long. What time is it? We I don't just... even know, but my my sweet podcast editor is probably going to like be like, no, no, we should have got it off. But it was so good. And I'm just so incredibly grateful for you. I'm so proud of you. I feel incredibly blessed to have um, just to know you and to know your story and the generosity that you shared with me and that you shared with our listeners. Um, I truly believe that these moments and that these stories, my hope is that that creates a sense of um, a spark, a sense that someone out there that is going through something like you're not alone like you're not alone if it's hard you're not alone if it feels like everything's falling apart like there's something gold on the other side of it and we are cheering you on and just continue to be brave and to pursue and to be curious and to um, open yourself up because there's something really good on the other side it's okay to suck it's okay to suck (laughs) it's okay to suck that's gonna actually let's rename the podcast it's called it's okay to suck I love it. Thank you so much, Sadie. Yeah, thank you. Oh my goodness. I really could have talked to Sadie all day. So much wisdom and experience and vulnerability and curiosity. I hope that you feel encouraged and inspired and a little bit less alone. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, we reconnected with Sadie regarding Bar 3's commitment to address systemic racism in our country. And her statement reads, and I quote, This is the hardest and most important time in our history here at Bar 3. As a white woman with tremendous privilege, I am doing my own inner work to confront my implicit white bias so that I can help break the cycle of systemic racism within my own walls here at Bar 3. I am very self-aware that Bar 3 is predominantly white. I am also aware that the broader fitness and wellness industry is generally white. And this is not healthy. Diversity is healthy. Along with many of my team members, we are actively listening, learning, and holding space for rage, sadness, blame, hope, and everything in between. These uncomfortable conversations need to happen if we truly want to change. One thing I'm struggling with is the realization that this will take time. I am tempted to react, but I know that the most important thing that we can do right now is surround ourselves with Black, Indigenous, and people of color voices and teachers in the space of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and develop a long-term sustainable plan to create a truly inclusive brand of fitness. This will take time, and we are all in. 
Sadie also shared that Bar 3 is slowly reopening their studios depending on the market. They will continue to increase their popular live stream local studio classes and release new online workouts, which are awesome. You can head over to bar3.com for updates. This podcast was made possible in part by our amazing sponsor, Baker Publishing Group, and my amazing producers, Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit lizbohannon.co or follow us on Instagram at lizbohannon and at sincerelyhuman or on Twitter, you can follow human underscore media. You cannot follow me on Twitter because I forgot my password about three years ago. (laughs) So head over to Instagram if you want to hang out. That's all, guys. We'll catch you again in the next episode. Until then, have a great plucking week.